Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined by a new interlocutor, Jack Fowler of NR Fame of National Review. Jack, thank you very much for accepting to be on the podcast. I try every year to write at least a big essay for Memorial Day weekend to somehow think about war through cinema. This is what we do at the American Cinema Foundation. And I think more and more cinema has become the memory of American history, especially 20th century history, a lot of it was filmed, a lot of it is the subject of films. It becomes a very visual national memory, although, of course, men, especially once they hit middle age, love reading history and especially war history. It's a very American thing that kids largely don't do, but adults at some point realize they have to do it. And it's a very big deal. But the the movies are somehow even more all-encompassing since they include men and women and the young. So I'm happy to be able, aside from the essays, to also do podcasts about the war movies. And Battleground, our subject today, the big movie about Bastonia, the most famous portrayal of the Battle of the Bulge, I think, before, I guess, eventually became Band of Brothers for my generation. That came out when I was a teenager. I, I saw it first and I saw Battleground later. That also makes for a very interesting comparison how American vision of the war changed. But Battleground, this great 1949 movie, is something I've been meaning to talk about for a while. And up until chatting with you online on Twitter, I never found somebody who loves the movie, knows it inside out, could speak passionately about it. So it was a serendipitous, and uh, I'm very thankful. Also, this is your first time on the podcast. So please, Jack, introduce yourself for our audience, and let's get to Battleground. Okay, well, Titus, thank you so much. I was the publisher of National Review magazine for about a dozen years, but I worked at National Review for over 30 years. I was the congressional reporter. I ended up being the vice president at the end of my tenure there, which ended about two years ago. And now I am at an organization called AMPHIL, used to be called American Philanthropic. We help nonprofits with their fundraising needs, but we were also uh, very intent on strengthening civil society. And I do wear a cap for our Center for Civil Society. I'm a senior fellow there. And quite recently, I hosted my own webinar with two of National Review's three great movie critics. I must say, this is one of them, my great senses of pride about NR was that at one time, Kyle Smith, Ross Douthat, and the great Armand White were all reviewing movies for National Review. And you were writing, and you'll still write for National Review on occasion. So I think that's really, really important. Uh, Movies are so damn central to what America is. And this movie, Battleground, and other movies, uh, war movies, Memorial Day-related movies, are things that seem to have been forgotten and need to be talked about, need to be transmitted on to another generation because they not only, you know, are a reflection of America at the time, but they also speak certain values that should be learned. And Titus, I just want to say one thing. I want to commend you for focusing on Memorial Day and take the opportunity to also commend Turner Classic Movies because conservatives are grimacing about all the media it's all left wing but turner classic movies does a great thing every year it sucks up it's complaining about the hollywood blacklist and those sort of things and it puts on a three-day carpet bombing of great war movies most of them 
I think, honor what Memorial Day is, which is to remember those who made the ultimate sacrifice. Some movies I don't think fit into that category neatly, like, you know, Kelly's Heroes or other kind of comedies. But still, it's really important in America that TCM does that, that you do what you're doing. I've tried to promote these things every time of year, so it's important to me. And I'm really, really glad to be on here to talk about Battleground. You're very kind, Jack. I'm pleased that TCM does this. You know, I used to do a lot of podcasts with Terry Teachout on Noir, and he and I would constantly come back to this, that TCM, they're doing a public service. Nobody does quite as much to keep the memory alive by making all of these things available to Americans. We're in this strange situation where technologically, it's never been easier with digital technology to share it with everybody, to talk about it, to easily access it, everywhere from your phone to a family, a living room to a school, if people do, you know, sometimes I lecture in colleges. So it's very easily available, but at the same time, strangely enough, it's in danger of being forgotten. Right. And Netflix has no old movies to speak of. Amazon has some old movies, but they're not a big deal and they're obviously not featured. It's as though... Everything in black and white and then everything before the 80s or maybe everything before 2000 is forgotten, never existed. It's a really weird situation to have it all so close to us, so easily available and yet uh, unheard of. And so, yeah, you're right. Somehow we have to pass it on. We have to make sure that it becomes a memory for people. It's not just discs or streaming available because that just might not make it. People might not discover it after all. We have got to do it. You and I may have seen Casablanca, you know, 20 times, but I have a feeling if you ask anyone under the age of 30, even someone who's been to college, very educated, et cetera, have you seen Casablanca? The answer would be no. So, yeah, you're right. There's a big uphill push that has to happen here. But one movie at a time, I guess. Yes, exactly right. And so let's get to Battleground. Battleground is famous for being the first very harsh or dramatic war movie. It's not war propaganda, as people say. Somehow propaganda, of course, can only ever be a bad thing as though you don't need to spread the news, you don't need to let people know what's going on, you don't need to inspire, or it can't be artistic. Somehow there's a lot of prejudice about what a war movie is, can or should be. And the battleground seems to be able to bypass this criticism because it's fairly honest about the psychological harshness of war, the shameful things men do. And nevertheless, it's able to show Americans in a very trying situation and see them through. It's a moment of testing. You can see why would we be talking about this? Well, it's the Battle of the Bulge. It's December 44. It's the last major German offensive, counteroffensive, really, and uh, therefore a great time of testing for an American army that had only come into the European war more recently and only had come into France in mid-44. Half a year later, there is this terrible surprise And it becomes, therefore, a test of American achievement. Uh, The Battle of the Bulge is, in a way, the opposite of D-Day. It's not the greatest amphibian operation, the greatest invasion in world history. It's not thousands upon thousands of watercraft, etc., etc. It's this very concentrated, very rural, forested area. Men are bereft of most of the modern technology of war. And therefore, they become tested as men and as Americans, as brothers in arms, as the phrase rightly has it, and maybe as Democrats as well. Will they hold on to each other when they are not under a very carefully organized hierarchy that imposes authority on them? 
when they have to act on their beliefs without that much to support them and much to test them. It's a moment for American morality as much as American might. It's not just a fight, it's a fight of the soul. The movie has therefore a seriousness that doesn't need to be declared or emphasized. The Battle right. of the Bulge has been famous for so long for very good reasons. But because it's a movie, it can focus us on this issue and, so to speak, fictionalize it. We get these actors. There's Van Johnson or Ricardo Montalban. There's John Hodiak there or George Murphy. These all-American figures are reassuring in a way, but they're not historical characters. Indeed, even the unit, it's about the 101st Airborne Division, but it's just a fictional unit within that storied unit. And that allows a bit of distance. Did you get the facts right? Was it technically accurate? Uh, that's not what counts here. We're allowed to look at the American moral issue without invading the privacy of any specific man, without putting a microphone in the face of a veteran and asking him to bury his soul. We can look at the American soul with, with the discretion that only fiction makes it possible. It's particular men in this particularly trying situation, but they're fictional. We recognize them as Americans, but we don't have to fact check it. And so the, the whole work of art, uh, by focusing our attention on the Battle of the Bulge, on Bastonia and the defense, makes us ask ourselves, do we recognize these men, what they're going through and why they are doing this? It's not just discovering what they are like, but discovering what speaks to us, what is truly in our hearts, how yeah. we feel about this. And therefore, as you said, the possibility of passing things on. Would Americans today react the way they did then? It's a question. Well, I think it's important, seemingly, the way Americans acted then with this particular movie. And it was a significant success for the studio. This is, after all, a commercial undertaking, so that did matter. But I believe it was a success because of its authenticity. The characters seem to be real people. I've watched this movie now, Titus, about, I'd say, 25 times. And that's within the last 20 years. I did not come across it until I was older. I'm 62, so I'm not a senior citizen yet. But this is not something that I knew of existed in my youth. There were war movies, The Longest Day, The Dirty Dozen, Kelly's Hero aforementioned. But Battleground didn't seem to ever make the cut. By the way, I do think a lot of movies don't make the cut. I want to sidetrack a little when you maybe talk about it later when you hear people talk about, oh, when I was younger and we watched all these Betty Davis movies, I scream at the TV, BS, <laughs> they weren't on, you couldn't see them. So this is one of the great opportunities we have today. Anyway, I came across Battleground through Turner, who was through one of their Memorial Day weekend marathons, and I was immediately struck by it. I think the authenticity of it is really compelling. The guys don't look like they're in uniforms that just came out of you know, the clothing department. It looks like they've been fighting for 27 days. They're grubby. The sky is for real. I mean, and it's gray. There are a couple of scenes where, you know, you can tell you're in a sound studio, but it seemed really authentic and believable and natural. And very quickly, Van Johnson was no longer, you know, Van Johnson. George Murphy was not the tap and dance guy. He was Pops. 
So I have a feeling that in 1949, men who had been at Bastogne four years earlier who would have seen this would have said, compared to other movies around the time, this is for real. And that's probably one of the reasons why it was so successful. I do think it also speaks to America as we'd like to be seen as Americans captured in the, of course, the famous response to the German demand that the American forces in Bastogne give up. And the response was nuts. So there's always this sense of comedy and uh, wiseacreness and wiseassness and sarcasm in, in Americans finding humor. I'm not saying other people don't find humor. I'm sure there was humor in the gulag, you know, but throughout this movie, the humor is sprinkled. There's no comic scenes even though you look at some John Ford movies, a great movie like The Searchers, right? And he has this comedy scene in there with the wedding. But this movie takes the comedy and just right, sprinkles it through in different ways. Everybody gets a chance to be a wise guy. And I think that's very affirming of its reality. So it's just an appealing movie in every sense as a cinematic thing, as something to watch. It's very real. And I'll stop filibustering. We can talk about some of the details. This is the concept you mentioned before, Band of Brothers. I do think, and I have never served, but I believe all my friends who have served and who say, Essentially, when you're fighting, you're fighting for your brothers who are with you in the foxhole and alongside you. And to me, that comes across in this movie. There's a speech at the end, you know, the chaplain played by the great Leon Ames, who gives a great talk about fighting fascism. And it's not disjointed. It needs to be said in this movie. I think the overall theme is we are a band of brothers fighting these MRFers. <laughs> Indeed. I think it's important to stress what a good production and what a big success this was, because this was already 1949, and there's been quite a bunch of war movies. Right. There were war movies during the war, actually. There were war movies after the war. And yet, when MGM made this, really, Dory Shari, the producer who was just coming in to begin to run MGM, Louis Mayer was still the boss. He insisted on this. He had tried to develop it at RKO, where he was a successful executive, but Howard Hughes was against it. And he really wanted this script. He really wanted to tell this story. And he worked hard to make it as authentic as you mentioned. They shot on location up the West Coast from Northern California to Washington State to get the forest, the gloomy skies, the perpetual overcast. Whether that means Americans can't get reinforced, that means they're going to be freezing after Christmas 44. So it contributes to the authenticity and to the oppressiveness of the atmosphere very well. And of course, it's gloomy skies, white snow. These Americans are freezing there and they're kind of lost. It makes for a very stark, very realistic portrayal of the harshness of the situation without becoming too melodramatic about their suffering. Right. It's right. remarkably expressive while being perfectly believable. And, you know, even the way he managed to get from photography, shooting the scene, to can you print it and can you view it in two days, really? 48 hours. And that meant that they understood much better what they were doing and how well it's working. Now, of course, Pirosh is the guy who wrote the script, the man who served in the Battle of the Bulge, not in the 101st, but he was there. And he won the Oscar for this screenplay. Clearly, it's a remarkable script. It's very well put, as you were saying. You get the character of the Americans, even from things like, how do Americans brag? 
How do they joke, make fun of the authorities, make fun of the legal restraints on a man's freedom, say, to get the Luger as a trophy? Is it a violation of the Sullivan Act? And the Second Amendment issue, I guess we would say nowadays. They have this somewhat flippant attitude to authority, and you see in it their oblique, indirect way of saying that they will stand on their own feet. You see them make fun and therefore show that they are not cowed, that faced with something crazy, they'll pretend it's not that dangerous because it makes it easier to keep your sanity if you refuse to face some of the, you know, don't dwell on it. They, They dare each other almost to brag, to laugh it off, and therefore help each other's spirit without getting sentimental or speechifying. So it's very plausible. It's a very good script. It captures something about how lively, open, frank, and funny American conversation is. A certain willingness of the democratic man to say what's on his mind, to stand up for himself, to just be himself, as one would yeah. say. It's it's very demotic. It's very fresh. Another great part of the script that's, I guess, since become quite a story, although it didn't happen at the Battle of the Bulge, it's too good a detail. Pirosh had to put it in. Germans were infiltrating in various parts of the line. And how do you catch a German? He doesn't know baseball. He doesn't know who won the pennant. He doesn't know who the stars are. So he doesn't know his Hollywood. But that's all American culture. And it turns out that it binds Americans together and it helps them identify who these spies, infiltrators, saboteurs would be. It's something as down to earth as pop culture that turns out to foil espionage. It's a really neat show of how useful and truly unifying American culture can be. It's so alien to the Nazis that they out themselves. Yeah, I think, by the way, this is a really important cinematic sequence here in this movie. As you brought up, they play this, the Ricardo Montalban, who, by the way, I met and had lunch with. Before I even knew Battleground existed, he came to National Review one day, and I should, maybe at the end I could talk about that. He's such a cool dude. But, you know, he and uh, John Hodiak and Van Johnson, obviously in their roles, realize that they are amidst a group of fake Americans who are Germans, and they run off, and then they engage them in some firearms, and then there's a battle. There are three Germans, they attack them, and they kill them. The Americans kill the three Germans, but you never see the knife going in. You never see the butt of the gun hitting the face, etc. Ricardo Montalban, whose character is named Rodriguez, he kills the first German. And when he comes up and his face is in the camera, he's got blood in his mouth, like he's bitten off this guy's ear or something or body part. And he wipes it and spits it and throws it away. And within a few minutes, he himself is shot by a tank. And there's this beautiful, well, it's not beautiful. It's it's the wrong word. It's very compelling, powerful scene of him being hidden, wounded, under a jeep hopefully we'll be able to come back and get you and of course that does not happen when they do come get him and he's died of his wounds and or of the cold again this is beautiful i'd say maybe exquisite the shot the filming of uncovering rodriguez from under the jeep and wiping the snow off his face and when you see that you do it really looks like ricardo montalban is dead really dead. And Van Johnson, his character's name is Holly, pats him like gently on the hand. It's a nanosecond of a little thing, but these things put together are just reinforce the theme that these men are fighting, to me, are fighting for each other. This has probably happened and probably happened many times 
in this battle and in other battles. So I think it drives up the authenticity also. Yeah, the depth of the script and the acting is remarkable. And then this strange note that the movie manages to hit, you see the suffering, the, as you're saying, tank shows up, the machine gunner on the turret just shoots this guy who has achieved moment of heroism. He just gets mowed down and they can't even take him with them. They hide him under a jeep and yeah, he dies there. And so they see him dead later. He didn't make it. And there's something so noble in his lonely death. Right. It's, and then you get to see it. Nobody says it, but it, it has a certain impact on you. You say that the whole movie making business, they're all working there together to give you in your seat, watching the movie, the chance to notice that. And they right. let it hit you. And you realize, oh, I understand something about this man that was always there in the way they chatted, in his manner. But then you see him, so to speak, prove it, do his part and pay the ultimate price. It's very persuasive because it's not didactic. And therefore, also the finality, the, the quietness of these scenes means there's no running away from it. Right. It stares you in the face and you notice this is what it really means. It hits home. I grew up, Cardinal Taliban was Khan in Star yes. Trek, The Wrath of Khan. So this very different portrayal, very different actor this easygoing hispanic fellow lazing in his bed and his comrades in the barracks make fun of him and you see how confident he is he takes their humor more or less as you would swat a fly or just swat right. a fly together right. and then suddenly you see yeah he really is as yeah, decisive the, as he suggested even more powerful i must say as a counterpoint to khan in america he had a very very popular tv show called fantasy island which eventually engaged in some lawsuit. I think he helped give the Hollywood accounting system a kick in the can. But so that's how most people my age knew Ricardo Montalban was through that. And he also had these commercials for, oh gosh, I forget, rich Corinthian leather. I don't know. I forget the exact car. So he was popular in American culture. He was known in American culture. And then a little later for Khan. So when I first saw Battleground and see Ricardo Montalban and his performances just... You know, terrific. He's really believable. And then I must say that I had already met him. He was a subscriber to National Review. And it's too long of a story to tell, but he came to New York and my predecessor is the publisher, Ed Capano, and I had lunch with him and his wife, who was Loretta Young's sister. And Loretta Young's sister was as beautiful as Loretta Young. And it was really fascinating. He was very kind, very courtly, proper man, very conservative, he was very uh, publicly a Catholic, too. So and, uh, anyway, he had one of the great friendships in the movie. There were several. but He and George Murphy had this. I think it was more like a big brother, younger brother, not father and son, even though they called George Murphy Pops. Pops was he was the oldest character. He was trying to get out. He should have gotten out. His wife was sick. He was supposed to be sent home. And then the guy with the dentures, I forget his character's name, Kip. Kip. He told George Murphy, uh, Pops, you're not getting out. We're surrounded. And that's when the severity of the situation really becomes clear to not that it wasn't all that severe beforehand. Anyway, there's that. And there's another twosome with John Hodiak and a smaller actor whose name was in the movie was Abner. And it turns out to be a really loving Abner was from the South and he came off as a well, as little Abner. But actually, if I may, Titus, John Hodiak, before he got into movies, did radio. And he was the voice for Little Abner, which was an extremely popular American 
cartoon comic strip for years. And actually, he made some movies over the years. Anyway, his foxhole mate was Abner, who was a good old boy and talked like that and yippee ki And he had this expression that as he would say, that's for sure, that's for dang sure. And he must have said it so many times, it just drove John Hodiak nuts. Yeah, so Abner also had this habit of sleeping without taking his boots off, which is, how do you do that when the temperature's freezing? The boots really didn't fit, but, and everyone should see the movie. You know, I don't, it's not like we're giving away anything. There was a battle, and by the way, we won, they lost. But Abner pays the ultimate sacrifice. He was in a foxhole, and he reached for his boots outside the foxhole instead of keeping them in, and he was shot and killed. And when John Hodiak sees that his foxhole mate, who he had complained about for making that expression over and over, when he sees him dead, his throat clutches. It is, again, it's like a half a second of film, but it is so powerful that he almost, he doesn't weep, but you could tell he wants to begin to weep over the death of his friend. And at the end of the movie, when this unit, this company is moving off, John Hodiak has a line where he repeats Abner. It's kind of an homage to his friend, you know, that's for sure, that's for dang sure. Quite beautiful. So to me, those were the two great camaraderies. I may be missing one, but some of the others floated around with each other. It's just a great mix of about, I think, Peter's there are probably seven guys that get prominence and maybe, I don't know, 13, 14 total. But Van Johnson, of course, is throughout. He has a number of comic scenes. I wouldn't call them scenes, but things that make you smile. And it's great that those things are in the movie. Anyway, I will yeah, be yeah, right I'm, I'm with you on this. As it happened that today was reading the end of book nine of Aristotle's Ethics about friendship. And then, you know, watching the movie, it clicked for me how how strong the depictions are, as you were saying about these pairs of friends, what it means that you love a guy, you want him to continue to be who he is, you see something good in him that you think maybe I have a bit of that in me as well, maybe we're alike, not just together, then how all of the annoyances somehow fade away when it's near, you realize suddenly that I just want this man to live. Right. And that in a way, in, in the life and death of your friend, you see your own life and death. And it is a very precious thing, but also a very hard thing to deal with. And so that's part of what adds to the movie's appeal to nobility. You see in these men a willingness in becoming so close to become, you risk your sanity, among other things, when men who are so close to you, as you were saying about Abner, reaches out of the fox for, for his boots and gets shot dead and that's it. And as people say, it's an absurd situation, but it, it's the vulnerability. It's what it means to be mortal. And to share that with somebody else opens you to being devastated by these right. events. And instead, you see a certain strength in these people that they, they face the trouble and Kodiak survives and he remembers his friend. Right. Now the stuff that used to annoy him is just the memory of how precious that man was or what he did for sharing these dangers together. And of course, because one died, the other walked away. The movies can show you this. And the part of the all-American charm of the movie is that it doesn't press any point too hard. Right. It's not a tragedy. It's not high drama with princes giving speeches before a battle. But it allows people to see what the stakes really are and therefore preserve some of that memory. Famously, veterans come back from this war, they don't talk about. Because I guess, first of all, it's hard to explain it to people who 
don't know anything about it. In a way, we think we know because we've seen it in the pictures, the movies. The, it's everywhere in it's literature. It's It can be comic strips and or, or graphic novels nowadays. It can be animations. In a way, it's very easy to find images of it and think you know the thing. But at the time, there weren't even images. Somehow there was a silence about these things that it was maybe even improper to violate. And the movies had to right. tread somewhat carefully to, to do it well. As you know, Americans are very good at logistics in war and like true stories in fiction. And so obviously what Sherry did was hire dozens uh, as extras from the 101st Airborne to be technical advisors from Colonel down to private to reconstruct it as accurately as possible to be a plausible and therefore an honorable depiction, an homage but also to allow Americans to see what it was. In a way, it right. was the first time Americans were seeing what is it at all like to be in a foxhole? What is it at all like to be next to this other guy? What does it mean to be in a barracks? You know, who knows what barracks life is except for my like, stories. It's remarkably revealing, even at this level of, for many people, maybe it's the first time they see anything about it. So it's persuasive, it's revealing, it's worthwhile. Even nowadays, you watch this movie and it hits you how important it is for people to realize that each one of them in this situation is just about to die, that none of them can make it. But right. together, some might. It's a victory for America, but for the people in the unit, some live and some die. There's no victory in, in that sense for everybody. Only some have victory and therefore have also a strange sense of guilt and vulnerability. Why did this guy die and that one live? That itself can be heartbreaking. It's hard also, to deal with you know, in a movie, like, but they do it well. I like how you say there's no heavy handedness one way or the other. And I think that comes across also in some of these other characters with how close they are to being cowards. And I wouldn't call one one guy is sort of a cowardly, but everyone has the potential of being cowards and the potential of being heroes. And late developing to some relationship in this movie is between the actor Marshall Thompson, who plays Leighton. He was, a, I think, kind of a heartthrob at the studio at the time. He was also in They Were Expendable, John Ward's great movie. But the movie begins with him joining this unit that is already, you can tell within the first minute, this is an already homogeneous unit. But he eventually gets accepted in. And there's the famous scene of the great gun battle at the railroad embankment between the Americans and the Germans. And Van Johnson, who is sort of in a leadership role by this point, begins to hightail it. And he's one step from hightailing it. And behind him comes Leighton saying, Holly, Holly was Van Johnson's character's name. He snapped him out of being a coward and immediately they both become heroes because they take a position that essentially anchors the attack against the Germans that prevail at that little battle. So another character there I mentioned before, Kip, he had dentures and he had really had dentures and he could do something with his teeth with his dentures that made him click. It's really kind of funny. I hope I never get dentures and have to see if I can do that myself. But he's kind of, I lost my dentures. He was off unit for two weeks before the battle because they were trying to get new dentures. But he seems to be a shirker and looking to get out. But again, in this famous battle, 
he shows some great bravery coming to the aid of one of his unit members. So the guy who really kind of was cowardly, Richard Jekyll, he wasn't nominated for an Academy Award in the early 70s. I'm not sure for what movie. People would know him probably more popularly from The Dirty Dozen, where he was the aide to the Lee Marvin character. But Richard Jekyll is just trying to avoid fighting at all costs. And he pays the price because you can try to hide, but if you're in a besieged city, you know, a bomb might find you and it found him. But anyway, it was that coward versus hero dynamic is very compelling and not done in a, in a heavy handed way. Yeah, that's true that uh, you see this guy, he's the only guy we see as a deserter, but he still tries to help. He does KP duty. And when the, the fighting becomes thick, he lingers, he lingers, he hesitates, he's too scared and eventually will collapses on him. Yeah, you can hide, but only so long. Just because you're not going to fight doesn't mean you're not going to die. It's right. a, an important <laughs> realization. Yeah. But I, I like especially this scene you mentioned with Van Johnson, Holly's moment of fear. He breaks and runs momentarily. And it's the rookie who follows him. And then suddenly this veteran guy, he realizes he's ashamed before this rookie. That somehow it's about all American equality. It's about what democracy connects to in human nature. One of them is a veteran, one of them is a rookie, but they're not that far apart that the one cannot make the other feel ashamed of himself and therefore bring him back to himself. And that's the correlative of what you were saying. Love of your brothers fighting for the guy next to you. There's also this unbearable shame that you can't let these guys down. That more than anything proves that he's accepted the rookie as a soldier, is the rookie becomes to him suddenly this moral authority before whom he feels shame because he is one of the men in the unit. And as a matter of art, as writing, it has this unusual cleverness that a moment of weakness and shame both brings these men together and confirms their togetherness as a unit, but turns something of a defeat, a moment of cowardice, into a clever tactic, into a clever maneuver. They can flank the Germans now and deliver a surprise attack. And so this combination of the moral drama and the tactical success suggests something about the men, their character, and therefore about right. America, that a weakness can become a strength, something that you might hold men in contempt for. They're not ferocious, fearless, dauntless, heroic types, but it turns out it can be a strength. At any rate, we should not look down on them. We might, in looking down on them, be surprised. That's part of the point of the movie. The Germans look down on the Americans. The Germans are professional people who have fought five, six years of war at that point. The Americans are newer to the world, new to Europe, etc. But they should not be despised. They have resources that aren't immediately apparent. Indeed, the movie makes such an effort to showing what really happened at Bastonia to point out its moral importance. Suddenly, Americans couldn't count on this immense wealth of the American continent and the industry and the 100 million people potentially working. They can't count on all the technology, the ships. They can't even count on the planes. Americans without planes. Can you imagine it? No. Right? Not even that. So what are they going to do? They've got each other. But it turns out it's a lot more than initially meets the eye. The rookies and the Christmas tree, they're going to have a Christmas that, of course, is canceled. Christmas is canceled because of the Nazis. That's how you know they're bad guys. Christmas was canceled. <laughs> but, uh, and they were, going but, up, they were going to Paris on a leave. Exactly. They were going to get a weekend leave in Paris and it's all canceled. And instead, they're stuck in this nightmare they're not ready for and nobody can really help them. But in a strange way, the Christmas miracle still happens. These men can hold together. 
desperate fight to the, to the last box of ammunition in the end. Men, as you say, you see them at various times. They're not far from their breaking point. You see this brave man, Van Johnson, who comes back to fight from an injury at the beginning of the movie. And yet he does turn back and help save his unit. So you see almost the full gamut from this, this yeah. comradely ease and joking manner they have with each other to fear, misery, the suffering when people die, the breaking point where you might cut and run. It's quite a range of human emotions and, yeah. and manly but, responses to death and danger. Right. And again, you know, back on, I mentioned several times now the humor, but humor is part of our everyday life in serious situations, dire situations. People make jokes at funerals, you know, so it shouldn't be surprising. And it should be the case that humor is part of war movies. Often, I don't think they are, but I think there are three, probably four quick things. One is there's a funny scene kind of towards the beginning where uh, somebody's pushed off a table. They're trying to sleep in some packed in some room in a house and the guy falls off the table and into a crib, a rocking crib, and he's still sleeping. And it's, it's Kip and his teeth are clicking to the rhythm of the baby cradle moving back and forth. It's pretty funny. Van Johnson gets his hands on some eggs and there's this series of events of him trying to save the eggs to cook them, which uh, eventually never happens. And then the Germans drop surrender leaflets and James Whitmore, who was nominated for an Academy Award Best Supporting Actor for this movie, he moseys around, picks him up, and you can tell he's going to the bathroom and he needs something to wipe with. And then the last thing is the scene, uh, the replay of the Germans coming over the lines to demand the surrender. And the two German guys who are waiting behind, they're with George Murphy. And George Murphy's blowing smoke rings in their faces. And it's just, it's so funny because I'm sure guys who've smoked have tried to done that. And just to blow a, a perfect smoke ring is kind of an art. And to blow it in the face of a Nazi, you, you know, you're not supposed to hurt them, but this is the most you can get away with. And I got the sense that even the actors were smiling about this while they were doing it. So anyway, there's lots of little things like that strewn throughout that humanize the movie that's already pretty damn human to begin with. Yeah, I think all of these instances from the beginning, joking around and mocking the rookie in the barracks. And then, of course, right. there's a rookie there, as you mentioned, as we're talking about, he ends up a valued member. But at the beginning also allows us to, we're in that sense rookies as well. We prove nothing to these men. We're, you know, we right. can't really stand shoulder to shoulder with them. I've never been under fire. I've never been involved in any military whatsoever. Seeing them on screen is the, or hearing friends who are veterans talk is the closest I got to it. But it is uh, deeply moving and the humor allows for a bit of closeness. It clouds a bit the difference between men who face this sort of misery and prospect of death and those of us who are quite comfortable. And as you say, it humanizes, it brings people together. Even in that sense, it's part of American democracy, inclusive, if you will. It makes it possible for very different people to get along, but it unifies them also in another way. In, as you say, the concluding and most important moment is when General McAuliffe listens to the Germans demand surrender and therefore is very stiff and German. And he just says nuts and it turns out it needs interpretation. It's not immediately <laughs> comprehensible. Once you explain it, it becomes less comprehensible because it seems suicidal. And right. so all of a sudden, it turns out that uh, the humor is is also about daring death. It's about being indomitable. It, it seems at first kind of ridiculous, like you know, something so ridiculous as you're saying, the, the eggs. 
but like people do get hungry and especially in a miserable cold terrible winter you can see why this guy he, he's not trying to be a hero he would like to be less hungry you just want some scrambled eggs that's all but <laughs> that's uh, so much it, to ask for exactly but it allows the americans to remember at all points that they are human you do get hungry right. you're nothing without your body that's you when you're is dead and they don't want to be that they would like to be alive but when push comes to shove they're not just ridiculous they are the ones making fun they're the ones who are willing to dare death and so this somewhat comical uh you know comedy somehow ugly it's like the chattering teeth like the fake dentures or something grotesque about it but again the guy has to chew and he doesn't have teeth so what are you gonna do you know the grotesque will have to be it the ridiculous will have to be your resource and they do make a resource even out of that you would say that it gets to be such a bad situation that they end up fighting with their jokes too that too becomes part of their way of standing up for themselves and for each other yeah, and they learn to push the line with each other, get up to the line. Once or twice, somebody crosses a line, but their ball busting, if I may say, is uh, pretty well honed. <laughs> so, and, and Exactly, right? there's a lot of practice in it. And yeah. you can see the by the end of it, you see that, you know, they have to do this. It has to be done. It too is part of how they deal with trouble. And it's not clear that there's any other way. You get to see how every aspect of their lives really and truly does make sense, both the danger and the friendship that brings them together because it's so dangerous. All of that, every aspect down to their jokes gives you a complete picture almost, you could say. You you feel with every element that you understand these men a little better. You were just talking about what would America be without its Air Force, and I don't know if that came through, but that was a Black Hawk helicopter just flew over my house. Uh, I lived near the Sikorsky, <laughs> the Sikorsky helicopter plant. So, hey, Titus, uh, I want to say two things in case the helicopter lands on the house. One is that I think this movie is important in two ways. It really is a well-done movie as a thing, as a piece of art that somebody sat down and wrote a script for and filmed it. And it just, it is a beautifully visual thing to experience. Also, I think that if the Americans had lost that Bastogne, this would have been a terrible wound on the American psyche. You know, here we are, we're pushing these SOBs back. And how could we have effed this up to let them push through and push us around? Now, you know, let's say you can't go back in time, but what if the Germans had broken through? What would have happened? I think America still would have, you know, found a way in Patton's tanks and whatever. But this movie's important because it is a huge bandage on what could have been a, a tremendous, tremendous wound on America. So that's two things I think are important about the movie as a movie and how it talks about a very consequential event in our history. The other thing is, this is... A little aside, but I was watching a very infamous Van Johnson interview with David Letterman. And Van Johnson was a very flamboyant guy later in his life. He was in New York at the time he was appearing on La Cage au Fall. And for people who know David Letterman or watch, it's considered one of the more weird interviews he ever had. And Van Johnson was kind of being a jerk. But I thought it was funny. But he twice repeated that his favorite movie was Battleground. And he was in over, I think, 130 movies and, and a couple of them very good World War II movies. You know, The Kane Mutiny, that was such a damn important and good movie. Uh, he was 
probably you know the second central character to it and 30 seconds over tokyo and go for broke and amongst other movies so i think it means something that the man of such great hollywood experience really thought this was the pinnacle of his career yeah, I, I think it's also my favorite Van Johnson performance. He, he's the guy who starts out wounded, gets back to his unit. You don't quite know where he fits in anymore. He feels like he's being replaced by the rookie in the beginning. He's quite angry at it. Gradually, he figures out that he's got to be a bit of a leader, among other things. You just get this, not just fresh recruits, but fresh lieutenants. You're going to learn to lead men you've never seen before in this most horrible battle. It's not going to happen. Somebody else is going to have to step up, somebody the men know and trust, and it turns out to be this guy. He's the, you could say, the wounded hero. He's the troubled right. hero. And it's a difficult performance given the, as you were saying, it's more about friendship. It's more about the unit. It's not about him. And yet, he is needed for the drama. He is the one who shows best the dark side of things. As you were saying, just think about what it would have meant to lose. These are the 101st Airborne is just back from Operation Market Garden. Another one of these things that went pretty bad and could have gotten a lot worse. Of course, especially now, it's hard to say America is not omnipotent. I think they'd have won the war. I'm with you. The, the power was there. The leadership was there. But some of these decisions, Market Garden, I guess, is the most obvious one, but there are others, pretty big failures. And situations where it could have gone a lot worse and not just a lot more dead, but as you're saying, the shock and the nation having and the soldiers, first of all, having to face what it means to have these massive sacrifices go to nothing, just become slaughters. It's a very hard thing to deal with. Many, many people suffered and Americans won the war. It was the biggest success. And yet there was such a price to pay, but the price could have been a lot higher and Van Johnson is the guy in the movie who has to get across this. The suffering is real and threatening. The movie has to keep a certain tone and it cannot become sordid or, or horrifying. There's something, you know, actually classy within the, it's not Shakespearean tragedy, but within the popular democratic cinema form. It's quite free of the sordid. It's quite classy on the up and up. There is something winningly earnest about these characters and yet there must be for the audience a palpable sense of the catastrophe of right. what it might mean for people to lose their minds to lose their battle to lose their lives to fail in a terrible unmistakable unforgettable way that's what makes it so gripping it's part of how well the movie is made it's not yeah. easy to tell World War II stories where America is not winning. This is not a horror of war movie where you see the gore, limbs flying, people blown to bits. It's not that sort of thing. It does not have recourse to horrifying you. It merely wants you to face some of the fear and the uncertainty. Right. And when Which you know the is... situation, like as you said, we won, they lost. We know how it turns out. But from the beginning of the movie, the uncertainty piles upon uncertainty. Every American advantage, every American certainty and comfort is taken away from the men until they have nothing but themselves. They don't even have air cover. They don't have supplies. They don't have right. food. And they might not even have their minds anymore, so to speak. It's quite powerful. Even watching it, as I said, like the 25th time, you can't help but at some part, knowing what happened historically, knowing what the movies, you know, how it rolls out, I could quote the lines practically. I still think at some point, my God, are we going to blow this? It pulls you into the pending calamity 
uh, very well. By the way, one other thing this movie does that other movies, well, doesn't do that other war movies do, seems to me, is introducing the characters in that kind of, and here's Kalowitz from Brooklyn and whatever from my, now we all know they're guys and they come from places, but we don't get that in your face at the beginning, you know, a representative American, here's the guy from Florida. So I kind of like how that uh, almost a formulaic way of producing war movies was not used here. It's just refreshing. So Yeah, that's right. It can be a bit much to have all the American representation and equality and everybody from everywhere and all that. Somehow, you know, American diversity can also be confusing and it can be weird. You know, who are these people? They talk funny. What am I supposed to say? They don't talk funny. They talk funny. And uh, you are allowed to get along with that and to see how the men try to work it out themselves. It is not an easy thing to get to that kind of brotherhood that, of course, you cannot have in civilian life. Only when there's so much to do and so much to lose. Threaten people with death if you want them to love each other. So, you know, it's it's a hard lesson, but partly that's the point about war movies. You're right. It's helpful that it's not too much on the rara americanism yeah. it's not self-congratulatory it's it and the, as you said the fear is still gripping it's a, like the humor allows you not to get too high and mighty the fear the gripping fear reminds you not to take things for granted even at the end of the movie towards the very end when there's a religious service that leon aims who's just a tremendous actor and he also has another i mentioned before they were expendable he has a very small role at the end of that movie but he's a Lutheran minister, and he's having a field service. And anyone here from Ohio, well, I, anyone here who's a Lutheran, I'm a Lutheran. Well, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm here also for the Jews. I led a Jewish service last week. How did I do, Goldberg? You did great. So it was a really nice way of giving the e pluribus unum, the melting pot, without being heavy-handed. And at that point, also, he gave the I think appropriate talk about fighting fascism. Don't ever let it be said. And I think this is a point that the movie producers wanted people to take away. Don't ever let anyone tell you you were a sucker for fighting against fascism. And that has to be said because it's the truth. And there are other people who are saying you were a sucker if you if you fought in this. So anyway, it was a great scene. Uh, yep. Leon Ames, I think most people would know him as the father in Meet Me in St. Louis. He's just one of those great Hollywood actors that covered 30 or 40 years. So. Yeah, that was a wonderful musical, it's New Orleans. It's yeah, it's quite sentimental too. But here uh, he does very well, as you say. He asks uh, you know, the Jewish guy, how do you do? Not bad for a beginner, Padre. And he's, as you say, the one who says, freedom, uh, you're going to have to fight for it. People did not fight when they should have. They let this madness get out of hand, this claim that they were going to have a super idea, a super race, a super anything, the way the... It's a great line, it, right? right? Yeah. That super idea, that idea that somebody is better than all of these other people, they will kill, they will take over, they will decide everything. Freedom must somehow fight against that. And that was the lesson beyond getting along with the other guy or loving your brothers in arms. Freedom makes for fighting men and fighting men make for freedom. And without that, you cannot have any of the other things. The Battle of the Bulge also is supposed to show that will these men fight to the death? They're losing everything. They've got one thing at a time and they're running out of men too, but uh, they, they have to fight to the death. And without that, the other things are lost as well. It's therefore, as you say, a fitting moment to 
state what it is that made these men who they were. After all, to say you fight for the guy next to you, but you're wearing the same uniform. And how did you get in the same foxhole in the first place? They're all put together because they're all Americans. They all fight for the same country. And that country is about freedom. It's about men being able to stand up, not kneel before a super race, a super idea, a super tyranny, in short. It's fairly modestly done. Padre is not, after all, their leader or ruler, but he is a spiritual guide and a reminder that freedom requires this much suffering. And in a way, it's because people didn't fight sooner. He did, uh, exactly. Right. And that's, he didn't that's, ask for this. They did. That's why we fight. And right. We Exactly. And there had to the, be preemption of this that there was not. Which is very difficult because how do you have that mindset for the next war? There are many forces that will pull you away from anticipating correctly a worse situation. But so anyway, his talk, I thought, was very profound. Part of that is this could go bad. Everything can turn into you have to fight everything. Everything has to be fought. Everybody can be the next Hitler. Everything is fascism. It can lead to insanity and arrogance. But the better interpretation is is humbler. It was allowed to get to a world war out of fear and weakness and simply no love of freedom. And that's something you have to acknowledge. There's a reason you're facing hell right now. And that too comes with freedom. It's not about getting the most prudent men to do the most daring things as fast as they are possible or necessary. It's on the other hand, less prudent, less wise men, men who may not have much to recommend them beyond love of freedom. These guys, you wouldn't ask their financial advice. You might not want them to, you know, like the Marine joke, uh, you can trust the Marine with your life, but not with your wife. They will fight for freedom and love freedom they understand and they will put their lives on the line. It could be good enough if they have the organization, if love of freedom means there's a democracy that can act, then that unity and putting the whole power of the country behind the fight, it could be good enough, even if it's late, even if it takes so long, even if mistakes are made, even if you end up like at the Battle of the Bulge, not, you know, logistically, a moment of genius, Eisenhower moved a quarter million men into the fray very, very quickly, but badly supplied, badly prepared, crazy what the situation arose in the little town of Bastonia and the surrounding woods. And not to put a fine point, but the Americans were slaughtered. But they did not give up and eventually they won. And there you see a love of freedom, even in face of all of these mistakes, could carry the day. And at that point, it becomes something more than just these guys. They are Americans. It's America doing it. They're fighting the world in an American way. Their organization and disorganization are recognizably American. Distinctly American. Right. And (laughs) and in that sense, the speech too is fairly humble before each other and before God. They're not all-knowing or all-powerful. A lot of mistakes are still being made, but those two have to be lived with. It's partly merely a matter of remembering what it's for and why you have to put up humbly with mistakes too. I think people should know if they want to find this movie. There's so many movies illegally available on the internet. They just are. And I run on our American Philanthropic Ramples Slack channel. I've started an old movie thing and 
pardon my effort to educate my, my younger colleagues. And I, of course, I found Battleground right away. So if somebody wants to see it, I know they can find it within a nanosecond and should enjoy it. But I would also, I'd, I'd put money on it also being on Turner's Memorial Day Marathon. It's, they're not always on. I know the Turner guy, uh, Charles Tabash, who does the programming. And my other favorite war movie is, they, again, aforementioned, They Were Expendable by John Ford. I think there's... I, I just really, I really like, there's some tremendous filming that goes on uh, in that movie. Some really believable that these U-boats are uh, actually attacking a Japanese destroyer. But it wasn't on one year. And I wrote, like, indignant to, to uh, Charles. And he said, oh, yeah, Jack, we don't run everything every year. But there's still good odds that Battleground would be on this May. Well, I think this podcast will be out around Memorial Day. So check your listings, I think that they would say. Exactly. It's got to be available somewhere. It's I've never had trouble finding it, but we also kind of take it for granted. Hopefully it stays that way. But first of all, for next year, let's do They Were Expendable. I oh, share I'd love your to. love of that great movie. John Ford's statement about the war right at the end. And indeed, get people to remember, to not take things for granted, to remember what it was like when people were scared. America was just beginning one defeat after another to enter right. into World War II, very useful. And indeed, it's a humble victory. It's not triumphalist. It's very believable and more admirable for it. That should be our next. I'm so glad okay. you have mentioned it. Yeah. Um, well, as a final note, perhaps I should say Battleground was a very big success. It right. made more than $4 million in America. It made a lot of money, maybe a million and a half in the rest of the world. And the late 40s, the world was poor and battered and reconstructing. <laughs> And right. still, it was big success. It was MGM's big success that year, most profitable movie. It was also nominated for seven, eight Oscars, something like that. Everybody, the writer, he won. Pyrrhus did. The director, William Wellman, good director at MGM. Right. He was, was nominated, but he didn't win. The cinematographer, we were talking about the black and white forest snow misery of war photography he uh, paul vogel who also served in the war he won an oscar and on down the line the editor uh, you mentioned james whitmore in a supporting role as the sergeant a lot of nominations so the oscars also just like the audience realized battleground is rare and special and so i hope as much as the audience and the academy then now people should enjoy the movie first of all it's very enjoyable and then remember right. it because it moves you it's it's one of the ones that you will remember so i'm glad to have the chance i've had this on my mind for 10 15 years now it's the first time i get a chance to even talk about it right do a podcast as I said at the beginning, Jack, I'm very grateful that I discovered that you are the guy. Watch this movie more than I can easily count. <laughs> so I thought, who better? And you gave me the opportunity and to our audience. I'm sure they will also be grateful that you brought this to their attention, that our conversation gets them to think, if the guys like it so much, maybe I should give it a shot. Well, I hope so, Titus. Look, this is really enjoyable to talk about something I I have a fondness for. I'm, it's not my area of strength, but I thank you for, you know what you're talking about with these movies. It's really educational to listen to your comments and engrossing. So, but thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And yeah, if I haven't dropped dead of a heart attack uh, next year, I will come back and do They Were Expendable. Yeah. Very good. Well, happy Memorial Day. Uh, happy Memorial Day to all our listeners and uh, all the best until next time, Jack. 
Thank you so much, Titus. Thank you. God bless.